Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Eric Kokish, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with Canadian champion Eric Kokish about life as a world-class bridge coach and what it's like to sit across from people playing Kokish when you are the Kokish who created the convention. Plus, he shares his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. Hi, partner. How are you, Catherine? Jocelyn, I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I just got back from a work conference where I was besieged by some colleagues to teach them how to play bridge. So we had a little bridge lesson during one of the very few breaks we got during the conference, but it was really fun. We grabbed a, a conference room and I tried to set up a, a bridge teaching table. And do you mean with cards or do you mean? with No, I had brought cards specifically, oh. and, but you know, there wasn't a perfect bridge table. They were long, uh, long conference room tables type thing. So that wasn't, wasn't ideal, but we, we made it work and it was really, really fun. It was only an hour, but it seemed to leave them wanting more. They've asked for more lessons, which is great. But it was just really, it was really fun. I mean, so this is a bunch of lawyers and they're uh, full of questions. One of them kept saying, well, in hearts, I would do this. And I kept saying, well, it's a little different. (laughs) You have to play bridge. This is bridge. Another one seemed quite dismayed when... I characterized her hand as a bad hand. I mean, she had three points. (laughs) 
And she seemed to be wounded about that. And I then I had to sort of explain that in bridge and duplicate bridge, it's not whether you get the good cards or not. It's what you do with the cards that you're given as compared with what other people do with the same cards. And to that, she said, yes, mom. <laughs> um, it, but no, it was it was it was really fun. My intention was to get them to a position after one lesson that they could play on their own and practice. I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but maybe after another lesson, they definitely seem to understand the mechanics and the goals of the game. And I think with another lesson filling in kind of some missing pieces, they could be ready to start playing socially and then ideally at the club. So you did this off the fly. They had asked me, several people had asked me before the conference if there was any way I could give a bridge lesson at the conference. So ahead of time, I sent them a bit about bidding, how it starts at one club and goes up to seven, no Trump. I have a handout about that because I have given these lessons in the past, as we know. Um, and there was another handout just sort of generally about the scoring. Okay. So it wasn't like you just, you know, had to come up with it on the spot. You'd had some time to give them a little bit of background and yeah. prepare. So did you have prepared hands? No, no prepared hands. I didn't uh I didn't have room in my suitcase <laughs> for prepared hands. So I just brought one deck of cards and I just sort of taught them the mechanics and we played open hands the whole time. And it sounds like a couple of them had some experience with trick taking game. Yes. Yes. Obsessed with it, it sounds like. Um oh what was really funny was that they were both obsessed with playing hearts in their school, high school cafeteria, and they realized that they had gone to the same high school and they were one year apart. They didn't know each other there, but they had, they've been working together for years <laughs> and they didn't realize it. But when they started talking about playing hearts in the school cafeteria, they realized. <laughs> so I wonder if there's something in the water at that high school. <laughs> yes. Probably Brooklyn Tech. Brooklyn Tech grads, if you're out there and you like to play bridge, let us know. <laughs> so today's theme being the more the merrier, Jocelyn, our very first letter is how not to alienate newbies. Uh-oh. <laughs> One thing you don't want to do is say that they have a poor hand. <laughs> They take that very personally and they they're get very sad. This letter comes from Peter in Massachusetts. He writes, My long-standing partner of some 35 years and I are very sensitive to newcomers and go out of our way to make them feel welcome and to not be intimidated when first introduced to a competitive environment. We play a fairly standard version of match point precision with more than a few refinements, most of which require an unexpected alert, which can be confusing and even more difficult to understand. Whenever we meet a newcomer pair, we simply switch to a far more recognisable two-over-one system with the normal run-of-the-mill alerts. Getting these players past the initial hump on the learning curve is mission one. All best, Peter. 
I think that is really generous and really nice and actually a really great idea. Yeah. You know, I think I've heard just about every alert there is to hear and I still get completely <laughs> overwhelmed by them. So I can't imagine putting myself in the shoes of a beginner and what it must feel like. Awful. Oh, I remember. Yeah. And those pre-alert cards that people would pass out with their insane system. I just remember being completely overwhelmed. and like, Yeah. Well, well you said it then and my eyes kind of glazed over just the idea of it. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was, that's exactly right. And I just, you know, I couldn't deal with it, but I was so intimidated. I probably did not play my best and it probably wasn't, it wasn't fun. Yeah. Well, I think that's very nice and very nice. You know, certainly something to keep in mind. I mean, I imagine people don't necessarily want to change their system, but I do think it's nice. If you know that people are inexperienced, just be um, much kinder about it all. I remember Andrew Robson saying when we talked to him that, when people play online, you know, there's a tendency, especially when you can just see you're going to make the hand to just claim. And he was saying that you shouldn't do that. You should just take the time and make your decisions more accessible and understandable to the relatively experienced or inexperienced people around the table. I mean, obviously, if everyone knows what's going on, sure, claim, do your thing. But I think, yes, be nice, explain clearly. Maybe don't overwhelm people just because you can. It's funny also, sometimes you forget that you are no longer in that category because you were in that category and you forget what it's like. Yeah. And you, I mean, my tendency is to be a little bit impatient and it's, this is a really good reminder that, hey, this is what you were like five years ago or (laughs) uh, maybe yesterday. Five minutes ago, hello. <laughs> Five minutes ago. Um, so don't be so impatient. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Cool your jets. Yeah. That's a good one. Our next letter is from Bill in Hawaii. He says, Aloha, wonderful ladies. <laughs> Aloha. <laughs> During a recent tournament, my partner and I were playing a bracketed team game and had quite a positive result but not due to our exceptional bridge play. Rather, it was due to a complete mix-up that just fortunately worked out for us. Let me explain the bidding first from my partner's perspective. He opened one heart and looked back down at his cards. After a bit, he looks up and sees that I have bid five hearts. The excitement builds. Per our agreement, one heart, five hearts means pass if you have neither the ace king of hearts, bid six if you have one of them, and bid seven if you have them both. My partner had them both, and after a brief pause to allow the opponent to do something with the bidding box, promptly bid seven hearts, only to become somewhat frustrated to see his left-hand opponent make a sacrifice bid of seven spades, followed by pass, pass, and then my partner doubled. Then the play of the hand began. Ba-da-da-da! <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, when my partner had been staring at his cards, he had missed the fact that his left-hand opponent had bid four spades and my five-heart bid was merely an attempt to either sacrifice in five hearts, I had two high card points but quite a number of hearts, or drive the opponents to five spades. The opponents, my left-hand opponent, did in fact bid five spades, followed by my partner bidding seven hearts, 
and then the seven spades by the opponents and doubled by my partner. It turned out that the opponents could in fact make six spades, but not seven. Over at the other table, a more normal bidding approach got our teammates to four spades, making six for a very nice imp swing our way. All my best from Hawaii. That's great and very exciting auction there and probably play of the hand too. Thank goodness that it all worked out. (laughs) Seven spades doubled making. That could have been interesting. Interesting. (laughs) Very exciting in either event. Yeah. Love a good stumble top. Yeah. Our final letter today comes from Stuart in Vermont. Stuart is writing to us about a recent somewhat disturbing bridge dream. Oh, I've had those. (laughs) In my dream, I was playing in a face-to-face game with my regular partner. After a long and complicated auction, my left-hand opponent became the declarer at seven no trump. I held an ace and had made a lead-directing double somewhere along the way, so I was feeling pretty good about our chances. I doubled the seven no trump bid. My partner was on lead, obviously. He chose a card from his hand, placed it somewhat dramatically face down on the table and asked, any question? I said, none. My partner nodded and moved to turn the lead card over and I woke up. I was so (laughs) frustrated. I still don't know whether we set that contract or not. I wonder whether you or your guests have had similar experiences. Lol, Stuart. Wow. Well, I must say, Stuart's dream is so much more accurate than my bridge dreams, where I might be playing with things that are not even cards, but I'm still sort of playing bridge, but I don't have things like clear auctions with a declarer and a lead. I mean, it's just, it's, my bridge dreams are weird. They're not they're not realistic. like students. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm the same. I'll wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and my head will be swirling with numbers and aspects of contracts, but none of it makes any sense whatsoever. This, <laughs> right. this is much more a traditional narrative. I love it. You know, and then you leave us, on a, yeah, leave us on a cliffhanger. Way to go there. <laughs> Should follow up with your partner, Stuart. Ask them what they did. <laughs> Let us know. I'm sure he led to the ace. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure he did. (laughs) (laughs) So if you have any fun stories about gathering work colleagues for a lesson or other stories in the more the merrier vein, or if you have any stories about alienating newbies or not alienating newbies or about bridge dreams, we'd love to hear your bridge dreams. Please do send them to us at sorrypartnerpodcast.com at gmail.com or at sorry partner podcast on instagram or tweet us at sorry underline partner these links are in the show notes and on the website at sorrypartner.com along with some other good stuff coming up next our interview with eric kokish Canadian champion Eric Kokish is a professional bridge player, coach, bidding theorist, and writer. As a player, he has won four world championship medals, two silver and two bronze. He has also won two North American titles, 
five Canadian national team championships, and he came in second in the World Open Pairs. He is a member of the ACBL Hall of Fame and the Canadian Hall of Fame and is credited with inventing Montreal relays and Kokish relays. We began by asking him to describe a normal day in the life of Eric Kokish. Well, things have changed. You know, I mean, I used to keep pretty normal hours. I seem to get a lot more sleep now than I used to because I need it. Both Beverly and I have some health issues, and that creates some problems for us. So we get up and we have breakfast. Beverly doesn't eat much. I eat a little bit more. I try and eat three meals a day. And uh, eventually I work my way downstairs to my computer and uh, check on the emails and respond to whoever I should and try and keep up to date that way. And I have some hobbies that I do when I'm not playing. I'm into fantasy baseball, which is one of my favorite things. I'm a big baseball fan. And so I'm always looking at the internet for that kind of stuff. And, you know, right now I'm sort of semi-retired, although I'm still officially the coach of the nickel team. I don't do as much with them as I used to. So you said when you're not playing. So I take it then that you are quite often still playing. No, I'm not playing at all. You're not playing at all, not even online? Not even online. I play very occasionally uh, with a partner against Nick and Ralph. But apart from that, I, I really have no interest anymore in competing seriously. If I were still in top shape and stuff, I still think it was very exciting and thrilling as I used to do all the time when I was mainly a player rather than a coach. At the point where coaching took over, there really wasn't time for me to play in all the events that I was coaching teams for. And those were the events I really wanted to play in. The world championships were always a big thrill for me. And as a player, I had done very well in those, playing for Canada. Even at the nationals and stuff, although we weren't on professional teams, there were usually six of us who were very good friends, played together in the major events, and had done quite well. So I was a little bit sorry to give that up, but the coaching sort of took over my life for a while. And it sort of stayed that way, although I stopped playing probably, I guess 2017 was the last real bridge event I played in. Which one was that? That was the Ye Brothers Invitational Tournament. And I didn't think I was going to be able to play the whole thing on a four-man team. I was really not full of stamina at that point in my life. Yet, I was able to do it, and we won the event. And it was a terrific event. The field is very, very strong. And the day after the event, I got really sick. It sort of put a damper on it, but I realized I couldn't do all the things I wanted to do and still be myself. So that's the thing about playing bridge competently or competitively. If you can't do it the way you want to do it, it loses a lot of its oomph. And that's really what happened to me. What's involved in being a coach of a top-level team? Well, the one thing you don't do is teach them how to play. So that's a very big plus. In the early days, with depending on who I was working with, Bob Hammond and Paul Soloway, two of the world's great players, we went to the fat farm at Duke University where they were trying to lose weight. And I was sharing an apartment with Bob, and I was not trying to lose weight. I was cooking these delicious breakfasts, and he was going nuts having to eat his nuts and berries every day. And we spent (laughs) about a week together, and it was a fun time and everything, but Bob was very busy with his business. And Paul wanted to use the time wisely to try and get ahead and get the system down pat. But trying to get Bob to sit still for any length of time was very, very difficult. In the end, we did a lot there, and we did a lot afterwards. And they became a very strong partnership, which is no surprise because they were both great players. 
So that was one kind of things that happens. But when I go to a country, not knowing exactly what I'm going to be dealing with yet, sometimes it's with a whole squad of players. The skill level is a little bit different. And usually they're receptive to ideas that they hadn't seen before. Today, things have changed because so much has been written already and published and teams that play on the internet, pairs that play on the internet are pretty sophisticated. So I'm not talking really about relay systems, which are uh, another world, but just playing standard methods of some sort with a few gadgets become very, very popular. And the things that go with the basic system are excellent for the most part. But when I was starting out coaching, a lot of that stuff was not known. And so I could bring something new to the table. You're talking about coaching and I am fascinated, but I really don't understand what it is that you do. What does it mean that you're coaching a team? What are you bringing to the table? What are you going in there aiming to achieve? Well, let's think about the nickel team, which is the main job I've had for close to 20 years. The players don't need me to show them how to play, but they do like to be prepared for a major tournament. And so I used to prepare very, very detailed scouting reports on each of the teams that they were going to meet in the world championship. And I could do that partly because I was able to go to so many places and learn about so many different players. Plus, I had a huge bridge library and I would keep track of all the people who I thought had a chance to play for their country. These documents would be, some of them ran to about 70, 80 pages, and we were playing 24 teams and 23 other teams of the 24. So you'd prepare these documents. They would be an analysis of each of these players' games. Is that correct? Yep. And then the players that you were coaching would be reading the documents, were looking for what? To see the tendencies of the players they were going to play against. Were they aggressive? Did they preempt very wildly? Uh, How was their slam bidding? What was their carding like? Stuff like that. And then would you have analyzed this material beforehand and then give them suggestions about how to approach it? Or was this more like a brainstorming session? No, this was not a brainstorming session. These documents would go out to the team members, obviously leaving them as much time as possible, but sometimes only two or three weeks before the tournament, they would receive everything. Some guys would read every word. Some guys would skip to the end and see what the final summary is of each of the players and pairs they were playing against. Plus, you know, as very experienced experts, they had played against a lot of the players already and had their own ideas. So that was one of the main functions that I did for the nickel team. But I was also working with, certainly when Bob and Paul and Bob and Zia Mahmood were playing together, they would come online and we would bid a bunch of hands together. And I would send them an analysis of the the bidding plus a copy of the chat that we had at the table in case they had forgotten or there was something I wanted to highlight. And they could go over those things together or separately as they wanted to. Every project is different. I have been to, well, I guess close to 20 different countries. And each one of those coaching projects was different. I had gone to Iceland, for example, after they won the world championship in 1991. I was there in 95. The players were all the same players who had won the world championship earlier. It was one of the best, shortest gigs that I did. But the players were so keen, we used to work very, very long hours. And the discussions were really fantastic. I'm always very happy to do that. I do less of it now as I travel less. But if something came up, I might still find some way to do it online. 
I work with a lot of different pairs online where I focus in on their strengths and weaknesses, things in their system that maybe could be improved. And it's a, it's a different world. What is it that people are wanting from you when they engage you to be their coach? You're so esteemed. You're just generally considered, I think, the best coach in the world. What is it that you're bringing to this situation? I'm able to get into their dynamic and how they get along, which is very often a major problem. Even though they say they're interested in becoming a unit and thinking the same way and stuff, they always have to defend their position. One of the things I do best is find a happy ground where they can actually speak to each other openly and honestly. And I ask them a lot of questions that bring that out. You know, obviously, I, I work on their systems and things with them and point out things where they may have forgotten the system. One of the things that I do that you might find interesting, I send each partner 10 pairs of hands. So they get the East hands and the West hands, both of them. Now, they don't get on the phone or on the Internet and bid those hands together, what they do is they create the auction they think that their partnership would have at the table, having sat down to play in a real tournament. Then they send me their auctions, and I combine them, and I do an analysis of what I think they should have learned from these things, and what they've forgotten. Very often, you know, somebody will respond incorrectly to Blackwood because they were in such a hurry to do it. So at least we clear that up because... These days, there's zero or three responses to Blackwood, or one or four. And sometimes it just slips out the wrong way, and that could be the whole deal. That's an exercise I've done with everybody. And uh, there's a, a pair from India that I'm working with now that are finding this very helpful. Do you ever run into any conflict of interest issues where you've gleaned intelligence on one group from coaching them, and then you are in a position to leverage that intelligence when you're coaching the next team? That's a really good question. And as I told everyone once I was coaching the nickel team, that that's my main job. And whatever I did with them, I did with them. If something came out of it and I knew something about the individual pairs, I would be passing it on. So it was not a mystery or a secret. It's something that I did. There was a time when I was coaching about three or four different American teams at the same time. They were all rivals for the same championships, qualifying for the U.S. team. And I think it was understood that I wasn't giving up my job or trying to do my job with the nickel team any worse than I was, could possibly do it. So they were prepared for that. But it is a very good question because the conflict of interest could be there. There were other things like when I first started doing a lot more American work, I was working with probably five or six teams at the same time. And before I started doing that, I asked Nick how he felt about that, because if he wanted me not to do it, I was going to just say no. And he said, I don't pay you enough for you not to take the work, which is not really true. He was paying me just fine <laughs> at all but times. But you don't need to tell him. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever encountered a situation where you just had to say, you two should not be partners? <laughs> yes, <laughs> of all places, that was in Ireland. And one player was more experienced and much, much better than the other. And she was giving her hell from the beginning. And we eventually stepped aside and we talked very patiently and she promised she would be good. And I said, you know, promises are very cheap and it's not going to work for her if you can't change your attitude towards her. And she lasted 
I think a whole session of behaving. And then it it was the end. There are other situations as well. You sort of have to know whether the, the diatribe that people level it against each other is for real or it's just cultural. In Brazil, when uh, I went to work with them for the first time in 1985, they were hosting the world championships there. And both the pairs, both the strongest pairs, were always at each other's throats. And they said some pretty horrible things to each other, but it was all over. I mean, you know, they'd say something and it was, you know, that's the end of that. And they'd go on and play their normal game. But if I had said to them, I don't think you should be playing together, I would have been very wrong because that was the way they were. They had been that way all their lives. They were very emotional and excitable and very, very good friends. So every case is different. You must miss playing when you're coaching all these great players. And I just wonder if you had to experience some grief letting go of the game and if that's something that you continue to have to manage. Uh, That's a good question as well. Yes, it's true. There are times when I can see my guys playing on ViewGraph, for example, and I'm in my room watching on BBO, and I can see how the guy should make the hand or how he should defeat the contract, and he's thinking and thinking and thinking, and I say, please, don't you know? And, you know, I'd be thinking to myself, don't you know what's happened so far? And the guy would have a, a bad moment, and he'd make a bad play. And I could feel myself saying, but I would love to have been there behind him and pulled the card out of his hand and put it on the table. But yeah, I have regrets about not playing sometimes. And it's never a question of saying, you know, I'm a better player than they are. It never comes to that. It's just, I guess, a a vicarious experience that you have when you're not playing and you can see all the cards and you're watching people play. And the idea is always to assume that you don't see all the cards, that you just see the cards you're looking at in one player's hand and trying to think along with them. When I started to do the world championships a long time ago, in 1979, the world championship books, there was a book every year put out by the World Bridge Federation. There was some point where I had liked to read the books because I wanted to keep up with the game, but the books were very, very dry and all they did was sort of tell you what the play was. And I thought, well, you know, What people really want to know is what were the players thinking when they made this play? And so when I started to write the book, I would spend a lot of time interviewing players, following up on things. And even uh, without all that knowledge, I would try and put myself in their place and explain why a play was made. And it was like my baby for many, many years. And I was sorry to give that up, but it was just too much time for too little remuneration to keep on doing it when I had so many other interests. Just that idea of putting yourself in the shoes of these other players, how much of it is also about letting go of a degree of ego? Because I expect to be a good coach, you have to let go of some ego. Is that fair? Well, when I was a player and thought I was a pretty good player, I had the same sort of ego and arrogance that I sometimes find in other players and tell them not to be like. But... (laughs) And there came a point where I had really lost all the ego. I don't know why it happened. Um, It could be from some of the people I played with and some of the interactions I had, but I was a different person after that. And so I don't bring any ego to the table at all or to the job. I'm not 
trying to sell anything that somebody doesn't want to buy. We could put it that way. But if there are alternatives, and I pose the alternatives, I will always ask them, what do you think of this as opposed to what's happening now? So, I mean, it's basically a Socratic method. And I find that that's much more effective than lecturing or reading out loud and asking people to take notes, things of that nature. What you want to do is keep the dialogue going and keep the interest there just to see if there are different ways and different things we could do better and to maybe work on the partnership. Partnership is the big thing for me in the coaching. That's what I think I work at, the most interesting types of things that uh, that the, the program has to offer. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Thanks again for listening. Just a reminder that supporters enjoy ad-free episodes. As you know, we try to keep Sorry Partner available for everybody, but it does take a lot of time and effort to put the show together. So if you would like to help us out, we'd really appreciate it. Donating is really easy. You just go to sorrypartner.com and you'll see a tab along the top, support the show, and that takes you right to our secure Patreon page. Many of you have contributed already and we are so grateful, but if you haven't, we'd really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Now, back to the show. Did you ever find when you were playing that you would be wearing your coach hat and coaching your own self as a player? There's an element in it that's true. In 1995, our team went to the Bermuda Bowl, the World Championship. And we eventually lost to the nickel team in a very close match at the end. Before we went to that tournament, there was obviously some anxiety and resentment among the partnerships. And I thought it was really important for us to try and fix that before we went. So we had a meeting and we all got together, closed the doors, and essentially yelled at each other for an hour. And it had such a good effect that it was the kind of thing I took with me later to other ventures. 
if you can get all the bad stuff out of the way, it's so much easier to move forward. So uh, do I bring the, the coaching thing to it? Well, I was the coach of that team, right. my own team. So it, it, yeah, there was some of it there, I suppose, but not to the point where it was didactic. That's one of the things I strive not to do. I guess I was thinking more in terms of as you're sitting at the table and playing, do you have a voice in your head that's different from the player, like the coach saying to you, step back, remember how, No, you know, I don't, no. I don't okay. think so. No. <laughs> okay. God, there are enough things in my head to worry about without that. <laughs> So the team that you just described, it was you and who else was on that team? Uh, I was playing with the, my first bridge partner, first real bridge partner, Joey Silver. We had won a major American tournament back in 1974. And a few years after that, we stopped playing together for various reasons. But we got together again around the middle 90s or so. So he was my partner. And the rest of our team was Mark Molson and Boris Barron, who hated each other and loved each other. So they were always at each other's throats over something. And I mean, to the point that there was occasionally physical violence. I mean, they, you know, they didn't haul off and punch each other. But I remember one scene where Boris had Mark by the throat, picked him up and had him against the wall. And it was over some stupid bridge <laughs> thing. And the, our, our third partnership was the men, George Middleman and Fred Gittleman. They were, I guess, the youngest or the most recent of the partnerships, and they had played very well, too. I was kind of hoping that they, they, would, they would play the last session with us when the match got really close, but they were spent by then, and the other pair had to come in and play, and they didn't do very well. And so we lost the event. It was sort of disappointing for all of us. All of you were in this, this meeting where you kind of thrashed it all out at the beginning beforehand? Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like this was a very emotional situation where there was a lot of high feeling and hot temper. Well, I would say that four of the six guys on our team were very emotional. And that's a lot. You don't usually find that kind of thing. Like on the nickel team, for example, you don't see any of it. So you never have to have a, a meeting like that on the nickel to team? To calm and somebody every- down? No. I mean, there might be an occasional discussion that Bobby Levin and Steve Weinstein, who you had on one of your shows explain that to you a bit about what happens when they have a serious disagreement about something, how they have to air it sometimes on bridge winners, sometimes in private, but they always manage to resolve it. And that's about the extent of how crazy it can get sometimes, but not not so much. If you get emotional at the bridge table and don't show it, that's okay. But when you show it, you start to lose your focus and you're thinking bad, impure thoughts and your game will always suffer. What mental tools do you encourage your players to employ to manage difficult situations at the table? It's mostly just focus. And how would you encourage them to focus? Well, you have to forget any bad results that you've had. That's one of the prime things that makes an expert these days and has for a long time. You know, there's only so much you can do, especially when the players you're working with are world champions many times over and know all about the game. I mean, it's not just the, the major tournaments that they play together. With the, the plethora of regional tournaments that there are, a lot of these guys earn an extra living by playing professionally in the regionals. So they're out there playing bridge almost every weekend. And, you know, it's enough. 
what they need is some peace and quiet and the ability to function. I'm sort of a, a quiet enthusiast for them. You said that your approach to coaching has really changed more recently, that you know, back in the day it was all about documents and getting people to study stuff, and I'm wondering how it's changed. Well, I think in, in the old days when there was less known about all these teams in the world and so many of the good players elsewhere, it was sort of good for everybody to know what was going on and who the players were and stuff. These days, so much is available on the internet and they've played so many more tournaments against all these players that for me to produce a 70-page document on Italy would be a waste of their time. So what we do now before a tournament is we produce two pages on each pair that they're going to play against. And we try and cram as much useful information into those two pages as possible. And I find that that works because even if they've looked at it a week before, they are going to review it the night before or even a half hour before the match. And you want to make it as user-friendly as possible. So, I mean, I might do differently if I were working with another country that hadn't seen all these things and been exposed to so much of it. What's the funniest thing that's ever happened when you were playing bridge? Well, Beverly and I were playing together in Deauville in the mixed up pairs. And person on my right opened a spade and I passed and it went two spades on my left and Beverly started to giggle. And so I said in my best French, <laughs> She's about to bid three clubs. <laughs> they called the director. The director came over and said, Kaski Supasi. <laughs> and I said, when my wife bids three clubs, which is trois it comes out like trois <laughs> And she doesn't particularly like to sound like Elmer Fudd. And so she. <laughs> tries very hard not to bid three clubs, but she's going to have to do it this time. And I always know what it means. They don't have bidding cards. There were no bidding cards at that time, which is really strange. Really, really strange. Because bidding boxes were well known already. I guess it was in <laughs> 1980 or 81. And the director didn't know what to do with it. He didn't know whether to penalize us or whether to take the board away. But in the end, he said, keep playing. You will play more. So... <laughs> That was one thing. That is very funny. That is a tongue twister. Trois trèfles. Yeah. Well, you could stand in front of your mirror and do that 10 times and see how you feel afterwards. I think you'll start laughing too. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most memorable place where you've played bridge? I can tell you one little vignette. In uh, 1980, we went to play our first Olympiad together. Uh, with a team of friends. And we, we were walking over in the morning and someone said, who are we playing this morning? And I said, we are playing against Turkey. And one of our players said, Turkey, who's carving? <laughs> ho, ho, ho. What do you think the answer was? Turkey. Turkey did the carving. They oh. won 20 to nothing against Canada that match. So we were walking back. We were walking back to the hotel. Our hotel was known as the Appalling Apollo because it really was an appalling hotel. <laughs> and I had uh, been watching on, on Viewgraph as our team was playing. I wasn't playing that match. And then I remember there was one hand where Eric Murray, one of the world's great players, 
had held a hand like King Queen Jack, fifth of spades, doubleton heart, and seven points in the minors. So he had 13 points with five, two, three, three distribution. And somebody had opened one heart in front of him. And perhaps you and I and 90% of the world would have overcalled one spade with five to the King Queen Jack. But Eric, who had support for all the suits, doubled for takeout. And as a result, he wasn't strong enough to bid his spades later, and they missed their spade fit. And the opponents bought the hand in three hearts when they could have made three spades. So before the tournament, Eric's partner, Sammy Kahila, says, you must be very careful because Eric is very sensitive. You shouldn't say anything to him. You shouldn't criticize his game in any way. And everything will be all right. He's very gruff and stuff, but you want him at the best, at his best. I said, absolutely, Sammy, you're 100% right. We're walking back to the hotel, and I couldn't resist. I said to Murray, I said, hey, Eric, do you guys play the overcall? And he <laughs> reached for me, and it was nearly the end of our, our performance altogether. We'd done very well in the tournament afterwards. But I had, I mean, it just goes to show you how immature a person can be <laughs> and how his sense of what's right and wrong can be affected by the scenario and the desire to say something. So, I mean, I can't say that I learned the lesson from this because I knew in advance what I was putting myself through. But it's, I guess, a moment when I slipped. <laughs> People come to their bridge games with so much history and baggage, but I'm wondering what you feel is the best approach to the game. Who should you strive to be at the table? You should strive to be a good person. You should strive to be a great partner and not harangue anybody, the opponents or your partner. And you should be willing to listen when the other person has a point of view after the game, not during the game. And you should be ethical and you should be humble. Humility is one of the great assets you can have. Not so often can you find it in the bridge world. But if you go into the game with those characteristics in mind, I think you'll become a great player someday if you have the skill. What's the biggest muck-up you've ever made or seen at the table? There was, I mean, there have been a lot of really bad hands, but the one that comes to mind readily and most people would recognize it took place in the 1990 World Championships in Geneva. We were playing the semifinal against Germany, and it was a close match, but we didn't know it was going to be a close match yet, and this was in the first quarter. And my friend George Middleman, who was very excitable and can really fly off the handle when things go wrong. I mean, there have been times when he's taken a finesse and it lost and he threw the cards across the room. <laughs> there, was, <laughs> there was another time when uh, his opponents bid a grand slam against him. His opponents were not very good players. And he said, here we are getting killed by roadkill. I'm setting the scenario for you. Here we are. He opens two spades, which at that moment was our new toy. And what two spades meant was, I have a three-bit in an undisclosed suit. Let's see what happens next. So it went two spades, and they overcalled three hearts. And I didn't have any spades. So I thought probably, well, it was possible George had some hearts, or he had one of the, or he had one of the miners. So I passed. And the partner of the three-heart bidder jumped to four spades. And that was natural. But George thought it was a splinter. 
He could have found that if it was natural. He could have asked. There were screens at the time. He passed, and it went past, and it came back to me. And now, at this point, I knew that four spades was natural. And so George's pre and the three heart bit was on my right. And I had four, four in the minors or five, four in the minors. And so I bid four, no Trump. So he would bid his suit. And the next thing I knew, we were in five spades doubled. He bid his spades again. And in five spades doubled, I believe we went for 1,400. <laughs> and our teammates had a minus result at the other table too. So we lost 18 imps on that board. And at the end, at the end of the session, we were still ahead by a few whiffs. <laughs> at the end of the session, but this was such a famous match, well, infamous really. At the end of this match, we thought we had lost, but in reality, we had won if the scores were actually checked correctly. And so there was a scandal about it. The next match hadn't started yet, and we thought we could at least get the score corrected and see what that would do. And it would change the result of the match. And we would have been playing in the final. So it went to a committee and the whole event turned on the meaning of the word manifestly. Was the score manifestly incorrect? Well, if you looked at the recorder sheet and went through it trick by trick, you would have seen that the result was 1,400. He said, but there's, you know, there was a possible result was 1,100. And it was the most horrible moment of our, our bridge lives for all of us. And uh, we lost the event. And instead of playing off for third place, the other team felt so strongly about it, the team we would have faced, that they decided they didn't want to play the third place playoff as well. And they split the, split the uh, bronze medals with us. Wow. Yeah, it was awful. Wow. So there's cheating and there's cheating. This isn't, I mean, you wouldn't say this was cheating, but it was. Was there an issue? Was there a heightened level, a heightened burden that you had to overcome because you hadn't corrected the score right away? Yes. So that's where the manifest, it had to be. No, the manifest was just a reflection of the score. Okay. Was the score manifestly incorrect? You know, there was some doubt about whether we were in time to have the correction done, but the conditions of contest said before the next match starts. Oh, okay. And the next match had to start it. So even though it was the next day and the committee had met in time, it wouldn't have changed anything. The other team would have been in the final. You were still there, right? Yeah. You're known for being the creator of a, of a few conventions. And mm -hmm. I was wondering if, you've, if you were ever in the situation where you were incognito or perhaps not recognized and, and the auction by the opponent mm. was alerted and they explained it. And it's, it's one of your, one of the coquishes. Um, yeah. And it and happens all the time. It happens all the time. Oh, <laughs> all the time. And, it must and I just want you to know, though, I would never name a convention after myself. So the, <laughs> so the convention that's convention that's known as Kokish, I wrote off originally as uh, recovering your birthright and have called this convention birthright since then. And, you know, in some for some publications, I actually go out of my way to make sure I tell them to change it when they're doing a review, but I can't help it. It's, I mean, everybody calls it cokish. There's not much I could do about it anymore. That's funny. But that's just one thing. I mean, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed creating things and coming up with new ideas. But one of the problems with that is if you're really a scientific player and you want to know what all the bids mean, it's really hard to find a partner who's willing to do all the work necessary to do exactly what you want. You know, especially when some of it may not come up for a while, you might think that, well, it won't come up for a while, but I'll remember it when it comes up because it's so unusual. I don't have to think about it. It'll jar my memory. But 
there's always a reticence from the other guy who says, it's not going to come up. Why should we spend energy learning it? And so I guess that may be my major fault as a player, as I was maybe too interested in knowing what all the bits meant. Do you have a favorite convention that you really love to play and that you really do hope that all your partners will agree to play? Yeah. I mean, there's a, a combination of game tries after one of a major past two of a major. And they have been also known as Kokish game tries and whatever. So it's a combination of short suit and long suit game tries. And you can make slam tries by starting with a short suit and then continuing with a long suit. And it's really not hard to learn and not hard to play. And so it's one of the ones I like to discuss if I'm going to play seriously with somebody. You know, there's so many conventions, destructive conventions out there that you need to have countermeasures to be able to defend against them properly. So in the beginning, when there wasn't too much written, but there was a lot being played, uh, coming up with good defenses against these treatments was part of my job. It used to be that there were so many def destructive conventions out there and not that much written about them. So I'd always been able to create good defenses against these things. And I have an archive of them. If they come up again, say before a tournament, where you're supposed to publish your conventions so the other team can prepare for them, I can always look through the cards and find out if there's something that I need to know and usually find the defense that I already have. So there's always something new coming up, and it's nice to be able to counter those things, make sure our guys are always prepared. Are there any conventions that you think are just a complete waste of time? And or as an alternative, are there any conventions that are just so difficult to 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 counteract that you just really hate them? Well, it used to be that the the multi two diamonds, which was two diamond opening, would show a weak two bit in one of the majors, used to have a strong component as well. It was either a weak two hearts, a weak two spades, or a strong balanced hand of some type. So it sounds like, you know, you'd like to get into the auction when they're weak and you're strong. But when, you know, when they have a big balanced hand, you don't want to be in their auction. So it, it's a little tricky to defend against. And, you know, strangely enough, while this convention is very commonplace in Europe, it was not being played very often in the States. And in fact, what they let people do is prepare a defense against it and keep the defensive notes with them at the table. But I wouldn't consider the multi uh, a very difficult convention. It used to be there was a convention called Fishbine, where someone would open a preempt and you would double for penalties. That was popular in the 50s, uh, less popular in the 60s, and is virtually extinct today. With good reason, because hands where you have a takeout double are much more frequent than hands where you have a pure penalty double of what they open on your right. Steve Weinstein and actually Nick and Ralph would not be happy to hear I don't like Flannery Two Diamonds very much, but um, <laughs> they've put a lot of work into it. And when it comes up, it's pretty decent for them. What's the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given or that you'd like to share with our listeners? When uh, I first started to play with Joey Silver, he said, what's the magic word? And I said, pass. He said, you can be my partner. <laughs> <laughs> true story but if I had to give someone a tip I'd say don't be afraid you should try and make your mistakes and learn from them 
And if you want to consult with somebody who plays really well, don't take it at face value because if the next expert you speak to will have a different opinion sometime. As long as you decide that you're going to test anything before you play it, you'll be okay. But never, never, never play a convention if you don't understand it and what happens later in the auction because later in the auction happens. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking to you. Thanks so much. It's been terrific. Yeah, it's been a pleasure for me too and interesting. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Eric Kokish. Thank you also to our Sorry Partner Posse of listener supporters who make the show possible. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Jade Gray and David Turner. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy with additional music by Elijah Meltzer. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or send us a voice message. And please consider joining the Sorry Partner Posse that helps keep us on the air, so to speak. You'll get ad-free episodes, a monthly newsletter, bonus audio from time to time, and other supporter perks. These links and a link to our discount offers and merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice, or we'll call the director. Until next time, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Eric says, never play a convention if you don't understand what happens later in the auction, because later happens. (laughs) Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.